Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143 million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history. Estimated losses from these breaches in excess of $20 billion. Hello and welcome back to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday American. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Besida, and I'm joined as always by my co-host. Dayton Williams, that lovable wonk. Thank you, Dayton, for joining us. Uh, hopefully you don't sound too different now that we're recording in different uh, states. Of course, I'm recording from beautiful, sunny Providence, Rhode Island. And as always, I'm here in D.C. Mm-hmm. But don't worry, I'll be back really soon. So today's discussion will be surrounding a style of cyber defense hotly discussed in the news this year. Let's tackle the controversial tactic involving active defense. Active defense? Jacob, that sounds pretty cryptic. What does it mean? What is active defense? Well, active defense is the process of monitoring and responding to adversaries who are trying to gain entry into the net. Many experts like to characterize active defense as a middle ground between passive defense and outright offense. Active defense strategy may involve leaving the network to disrupt attacks in progress, identify the source of aggression, or return stolen information, taking the fight to the bad guy, so to speak. It's like the old saying, the best defense is a good offense. Hmm. Supporters of active defense argue that the strategy offers a strong deterrence. If a network fights back, illicit actors may think twice before pursuing malicious cyber activities. And the U.S. government is starting to agree. Earlier this year, the Department of Homeland Security enacted a new policy to provide private companies with tools and resources in order to engage in active defense against cyber threats. The big takeaway here is that the government is encouraging private companies, non-military agents, in proactively responding to cyber attacks. For many top security leaders and private sector executives, cybersecurity vulnerabilities are a major threat to their missions and to national security. Massive corporate breaches to Sony and Yahoo exacerbate a growing loss of control to private information for customers and employees. For business, there exists a growing anxiety on how to adequately respond to the escalation in attacks on private interests. Proponents of active defense believe that private companies should be proactive in their response to aggression. Because responding to a breach is costly, cyber defenders strive to keep the attacker left of exploit, which means out of the network. Metaphorically, this means not just building walls, but striking from atop those walls as well. For instance, defenders could reroute adversarial traffic elsewhere using a tactic like sinkholing, where aggressors could send to a non-existent web address. More aggressive active defense could send attackers to honeypot systems where their anonymity could be compromised. Defenders could also deter attacks by shutting down systems or forcing log off. In 2009, Google responded to a Chinese-linked hacking campaign dubbed Operation Aurora. Google technicians became aware of an attack on its infrastructure by foreign hackers targeting Google's source code and specific Google accounts held by individuals the Chinese government considered political dissidents. The stakes were high, especially because hackers could potentially alter the source code undetected and build in vulnerabilities into Google products. Interestingly, Google tracked down the attackers to a server in Taiwan and took the unprecedented step of sharing its own findings with law enforcement, intelligence officials, other targeted companies, and the public at large. What's especially fascinating about this case is that if Google actually infiltrated another network to figure out the identity of the Chinese hackers, the company would be violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which we covered a couple episodes ago. Instead, the U.S. government praised Google's initiative and the Justice Department 
did not press charges. In a reversal, we can see now that with the passage of these new policies in the DHS, the U.S. government is leaning towards providing other companies tools and resources to imitate Google and fight back when a network is being threatened. However, one must ask, well, where does, you know, active defense end and outright attacking begin? This question has brought a great deal of fierce debate concerning active defense. Many fear that hacking back or responding to an attack with a proportional attack could result in corporate warfare, increasing the likelihood of damages to the network rather than deterring it. Generally speaking and legally speaking, hackbacks are not appropriate for uh, private sector or uh, commercial clients to do. Um, again, this, this really goes into unintended consequences. Really, what are you hacking back into? What you just heard was Fong Wen, a former guest on the podcast. Further complicating an active defense doctrine is the growing use of artificial intelligence in automating our cyber defense. The risk of escalation drives the fear of this doctrine even more. Imagine, Jacob, for a second, if you have two companies who both have automated defense systems. If one attacks the other, it could just create an endless loop. Continuing with our discussion with active defense, we return to Carnegie Institute for Peace researcher Wyatt Hoffman. Yeah, so what does active defense entail in terms of the private sector? We're talking about uh, the private sector has an outsized effect on the total United States' internet experience, I guess you could say. Um, what, what goes into that? total defense and mm -hmm. how does active defense play into that so i think the first thing we need to address is sort of the definitional issue here um, because active defense is a very kind of fraught debate uh there are depending on who you ask it can mean very different things and so to a lot of people in the information security community active defense entails all these things that you're doing within your network to uh, uh manipulate adversaries who are already inside your network, already trying to launch cyber attacks. Mm. So for instance, honeypots or honey nets, uh, the use of sort of decoy data or entire decoy networks that you can use to lure an attacker in and uh, trick them into stealing the wrong data or, or sort of you know trap the attack in there to study it. If you ask other people, active defense is merely a euphemism for hacking back. Mm -hmm. uh, a situation in which you know a, a private company gets hacked by a criminal or or any any hacker any malicious actor, and it actually hacks back into the networks or systems of that attacker, um, and and even within just the term active even within the term hacking back, there's variation in there, uh, and so something like a, uh, a a hack back that leverages a vulnerability in a remote access tool that, that an attacker is using is very different than a defender sort of going completely outside and, and attacking a, a network that they think is the adversaries. And so there's, there's a lot of variation here. Um, for the purposes of, of sort of the report and how I approach this, we were really interested in, you know, we, we start off by recognizing that there's confusion in this debate and disagreement over the terms. And we're really interested in having a discussion about the full range of things that are available, the, the full realm of the possible, because we really need to uh, talk about all these things. And there are some of them that we may decide to out of bounds. And there are some of them that are uncontroversial and, and are completely innocuous. But we really need to have this discussion of this whole spectrum of activities uh, from things that you're doing internal to your network to things that... Uh, go outside your network, but but like beaconing that don't actually have much of an impact outside of your network, uh, up to things that blur the lines between defense and offense. And so uh, that whole spectrum of, of capabilities and options is on the table. When, um, you, when you say beaconing, just for our listeners, what does that mean? Yeah, so uh, I, I guess in, in simple terms, the 
an analogy that's often used is low jack uh, in cars. So if you have low jack installed on your car, if it gets stolen, you it, it sends out a signal. It sort of pings back to a receiver, and it can tell you where the car is located. You can do the same thing basically with data. So you you attach a, a digital beacon to your to your data, and it gets exfiltrated from your network, and it pings back to you so you can help uh, attribute to the attack, so that you can identify stolen data that's being used elsewhere. Um, and it's one of those things that sort of lies in this gray space legally because uh, there are a lot of people who say beaconing is is completely legal and does does not violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act's prohibition on unauthorized access, which I'm sure we were getting to at some point there. Um, and there are certain things that clearly do, like hacking back is, is clearly a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Well, as much as we love talking about CFA, we're yeah. going to try to restrict ourselves from <laughs> well, talking I, too I, much on it. I agree, it. too, because and, and the, the philosophy of the report that we wrote was that we need to think about what's the environment that we want to look like, uh, not just domestically in the U.S., but internationally. What sort of things would be destabilizing if the private sector were doing them at a large scale, like destructive hackbacks, obviously, is a case of something that would be destabilizing if it, was a, if it became the norm that this is what everyone did. Uh, what things would be beneficial and stabilizing if done at a larger scale, um, and one could imagine how beaconing, if conducted responsibly, if conducted responsibly, could actually help the attribution problem and, and actually help stabilize the environment. And the the sort of legal implications flow from that. You know, what sh- what we should do or not do with the CFAA and these other issues should flow from what we think we want the environment to look like uh, and and how we try and shape that environment. I think. So I'm, I'm happy to set those aside. <laughs> oh, no, it's all right. Uh, please. In an environment with these private actors who are engaging in active defense, what do you see the consequences of a hackback uh, between companies, a kind of corporate warfare, if you will? Mm-hmm. So I, I would divide this between uh, the, the sort of immediate consequences in a particular, in a discrete exchange, and the systemic consequences, because I think it's important to talk about both of those. Right, definitely. Uh, in a discrete exchange... You've got this risk of escalation. So, you know, if, if company A uh, is hacked by uh, uh, company B, and company company A responds with with a hackback, uh, company G, com- company B could interpret that as an attack and, and then respond in kind, and that could lead to this escalatory situation. Um, you combine that with the sort of attribution challenge, uh, which which I'm, I'm sure. Listeners probably have a, a basic idea of mm. the, the the difficulty of attributing a cyber attack because a cyber attack can be rooted through third party networks and it can, it, the origins of it can be disguised. And so when you're hitting back at, at someone who's attacking you, you might not necessarily know if that's a common criminal or a nation state actor that has significantly advanced capabilities that could escalate the the situation. And so there's there's a risk of sort of the inadvertent escalation and collateral damage. In a, uh, in a in a discrete exchange, the systemic implications uh, are, are you know the question is what would happen if this becomes the norm and and you know the concern there is that uh, you have this this increasingly blurred line between hacking for commercial gain and hacking for national security reasons and sort of this you know the 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 distinction between uh, private actors and proxies being used by states would be blurred and, and mm-hmm. you would have this kind of systemic escalation potential. The approach that we've that we've taken in this report that we wrote, uh, which is called Private Sector Cyber Defense, it's available on our website if people are interested. Right. We'll we'll link it. Yeah. <laughs> sure we can we can plug our work somewhere in here. 
Um, the approach that we took was to look at the historical analogy of private security in the maritime space. And I think the benefit of that analogy, and we, and we can talk about the, the similarities and differences between, you know, cyberspace and the high seas on an operational level. That's not really where we saw the benefit of it. It's not that armed guards on, on ships are a lot like hacking back because they're very different for a lot of reasons. What was really interesting was the chronology of events and the parallels between what we saw in that space and the governance challenge that emerged and what we're seeing now in active, in active defense and, and hacking back in general. And so in the maritime space, you had the rise of this threat, the escalation of, of piracy, the escalation of tactics. Uh, it became an existential threat for, uh, uh, for the shipping companies that were operating in the Indian Ocean in the Gulf of Aden in the late 2000s. Uh, if you've seen Captain Phillips, you're familiar with the, mm. the risks, the, the threat from uh, Somali piracy. And states initially responded that this, uh, treating this as a military issue, and so these naval task forces were sent in to combat piracy, and you had all these problems, this huge operating space, and this difficulty of distinguishing pirates from fishermen, you know, sort of a similar attribution problem. Uh, and navies were unable to really uh, stem the problem. And what emerged was this private sector form of self-help. Uh, private shipping companies began to hire armed guards on board of their ships. And this was incredibly successful in deterring and, and combating piracy. No ship with armed guards had ever been hijacked successfully by, by pirates. So it had this very immediate impact on uh, defending against piracy, but also deterring piracy by reducing the expected payoffs for any, for any pirate. And it created this governance problem because it was difficult for individual states to regulate the practices of these shipping companies that were operating on the high seas, that were hiring mm. uh, uh, third world mercenaries in some cases, uh, that could easily circumvent regulations by flying under a flag of convenience where they were simply flagging under a, a state with more relaxed rules. And what eventually uh, brought standards to that space was not the ability of governments to regulate it and to control private actors. It was the financial motivation of insurers who partnered with uh, security providers to promote this sort of responsible, legitimate practice of uh, private security in the maritime context. Because the insurers realized the benefits of having armed guards, but they also realized that if you're hiring reckless sort of uh, gunslingers and not, you know, former Marines and Navy SEALs, and if your guards are engaging in aggressive rules of engagement or no rules of engagement, mm -hmm. uh, rather than practicing certain precautions and risk management measures, then you're actually increasing and inviting more risk than you're mitigating through having armed guards. And so the insurers were able to define responsible conduct and incentivize it through the cost of premiums and say, we'll lower your premiums if you partner with these security providers uh, that, that follow these rules. And what's interesting is that you see the same trends in cyber uh, the escalation of this threat. You have, you know, ransomware attacks that are shutting down entire operations. Uh, so, so Maersk, the shipping company, incidentally. And especially uh, hospitals, mainly. Yeah, hospitals yeah. were shut down. Uh, the, uh, uh, Merck, the pharmaceutical manufacturer, had its operations shut down. It had to borrow from the U.S. government uh, vaccines for HPV because it, it could no longer produce them. Uh, you're seeing cyber attacks have escalated to this now existential threat to business, Governments have been unable to better police cyberspace. They haven't gotten any better at that. Um, and so the private sector has the means, the motive, and the opportunity to undertake its own defense. And you have this similar situation where this, there's already a, a sort of nascent international market for hacking back and server takedown and kind of these shady 
sometimes they're shady. Some, there's also an a international market for completely innocuous uh, cybersecurity services. But the, the problem is that whatever we decide to do with our own national regulation, uh, whether we want to prohibit things or allow things, we have to reconcile, reconcile it with the international context here. Because when it's so easy to outsource these activities abroad, to hire some uh, firm to do this work for you in another country that has more relaxed rules, then simply banning the practice and, and you know hoping that the private sector abides by that is not working. And, and there's some evidence. It's, it's hard to uh, put any sort of figures or, or get any sense of, of what exactly is going on already. But there, there has been reporting on the degree to which hacking back and, and revenge hacking has been occurring even within the U.S., uh, much less abroad in, in more permissive environments. And so that's that's sort of the basic starting point that we that we look at. You know, this is not a theoretical debate about whether or not to allow an activity. Mm. We have to deal with the reality of what's already going on, and we have to ask ourselves, where are things headed? Uh, are they headed in a, a destabilizing direction? Is there an opportunity to to stabilize this space, to make active defense practicable? And so that's kind of the question that we focused on. How can we make active cyber defense practicable rather than whether or not should we allow this practice? Because that's that's more of a more of an academic question, really. Excellent. Uh, you mentioned that the ultimate solution and the ultimate driver for solving the issue with the Somali piracy was an insurance company saying that, well, okay, this is going to reflect in premiums. We need to make this a safer environment to work in. So an insurance company more or less pushed that uh, solution, right? Do you see a similar kind of thing happening in the cyberspace? Um, yeah, so that, that's a really good question because this this is the area that we've been focusing a lot on recently and we think is really promising is cyber insurance. I, I would I would slightly adjust it to say that insurance didn't, this didn't solve the problem of Somali piracy. Uh, it was really this this joint effort of, of you know, naval forces, uh, uh, passive measures that were taken by the shipping industry and armed guards. Um, what, what, the arm, what the armed guards did was really provide sort of a stopgap measure that helped states get a hold and, and, and promote order in this space. Um, but the, the unique advantage that insurers have is that they have the insight uh, to, to gather the data to understand what's risk-minimizing behavior. And so the way that we sort of look at it in the report is that, you know, the, the more aggressive you get in your defense the more you're, generally speaking, going to decrease the risk of getting hacked and the damages of getting hacked. Uh, because if you're more aggressive on the defense, you can mitigate more attacks and you can recover from the damage by deleting stolen data and things like that. But as you get more aggressive, the risk of your, uh, what, what insurers would call intentional acts, the things that you're doing uh, to, you know, towards self-help, those risks increase. And so you have this sort of trade-off of risks where... The more aggressive you get, the more your defenses may improve, but the more your risk of collateral damage and escalation and these in it, these these negative consequences increase. And so insurers are really better positioned than, for instance, regulators to define that conduct. And in sort of getting back to the question of uh, critical infrastructure security, insurers can can do a lot here to to identify, you know, what's what's an aggregation risk? If there's a uh, uh, if there's a certain industry that all relies on a, a certain cloud service, uh, it creates a single sort of point of failure. It creates an aggregation risk, and that's what insurers fear most in the world. That's what keeps them up at night. Uh, and so they can identify those things and say, okay, well, you, you shouldn't be doing this, or if you're going to do this, your premiums are going to increase because you're you're inviting more risk. 
they can they can help identify what are those practices that are uh, risk minimizing, and they can adapt over time and and learn from from experience in a way that's more fluid and, and uh, flexible than regulation is. And if we're thinking about how to make something like active defense practicable, um, the, what, what I really try and avoid is the sort of false dichotomies that this is either we legalize everything or keep it all illegal mm-hmm. or everyone does this or no one does this. Uh, the question is what kind of, uh, what, what, how can we sort of carve out space for legitimate practice? Because uh, in one sense, you don't want just any actor being able to do these things. Some, something like, let's, let's take something like, uh, even something more innocuous like beaconing. Let's take it as an example. It may, it may be the case that some, uh, a company like Google or Microsoft that is very advanced, has a lot of insight into things that are going on, can employ that very effectively. It may not be the case that Domino's Pizza can, can em- employ this effect, although mm-hmm. apparently they have good cybersecurity services from, from what I've heard. But the, you don't necessarily want a blanket approach where we say that everyone can do these things. And the problem with simply legalizing it is that that's what it does, is it, it, it opens up the activity and says anyone can do this now. But you can create impediments through insurers. And insurance can say, okay, if you're a cybersecurity provider, uh, you have to have cyber insurance, generally. Or, or if you're a bank that has to acquire cyber insurance and hire a cybersecurity provider, we want you to hire a provider that we know is undertaking responsible practice, similar to the maritime analogy. Mm. Uh, they can say these things are risk minimizing. Um, but here's the line at which now you're inviting more risk. You know, now, now you're talking about hacking back and causing damage, and now this is getting counterproductive. And so we want you to stay within these bounds of responsible conduct. And if you exceed those bounds, you're now liable for the damages and, and the costs of whatever uh, negative consequences mm-hmm. you invite. That's how you can start to create those barriers. And insurance can also say, uh, before you even think about resorting to these more aggressive active defenses, you should be doing everything in passive defense that you can to minimize your risk exposure in the first place. Because there's a lot that you can do uh, uh, before a cyber attack even occurs to minimize your exposure. If you have critical data that you can identify, maybe it should be isolated, maybe it shouldn't be exposed or, or remotely accessed. Um, insurance can, can condition engagement in more aggressive activities on those sort of no-brainer cybersecurity practices. And if it is the case that the vast majority, some you know, people say 80, 80% of cyber attacks can be prevented by basic cyber hygiene. If that is the case, and if you can condition active defense on those measures, then you've already restricted the circumstances in which you're going to be engaging in these things to a very, very narrow range of, of cyber attacks. And you're restricting them to... The more serious ones. Exactly. The, the ones where they actually, you know, this shouldn't be a means of first resort. Uh, the, it should be something that maybe is in the toolkit, uh, and maybe it's only in the toolkit for certain qualified or even certified providers, uh, and, and, but, but nevertheless should be in the toolkit. And, and I think critical infrastructure is important because when you're talking about services, private sector services and systems that underpin public health and safety, this is an area where I think we should seriously be considering how to implement certain things like active defense that, that can uh, help that. Um, because again, you know, this isn't, you know, we're not so concerned about Domino's cybersecurity that we need Domino's to be allowed to be doing these things. You know, it's not the end of the world. Well, you're not. You're not. I'm I'm not. I think our listeners are too. (laughs) Depending on where you rank Domino's in your, uh, in your scale of pizza places, it may be more, more critical to, uh, public health. Um, (laughs) but, but we might, but we might want, 
uh, cybersecurity providers who are protecting nuclear plants or electric grids to be able to have these things in their toolkit. Mm and moreover, you can actually condition these things on law enforcement oversight and cooperation. And we've seen models such as botnet takedowns for how law enforcement can work with the private sector. Uh, and in some of those botnet takedowns, the private sector has led the approach and the law enforcement has simply sort of, you know, given it, given it their oversight and their blessing. Uh, and we've seen models of this. And so I, I think, you know, I, I, I want to get away from from these sort of questions of, you know, should we legalize this or keep it illegal? These sort of false dichotomies that aren't really helpful for advancing the debate and ask under what conditions, uh, what activities would be conducive to security without inviting inordinate risk? And how do we set those conditions to allow for those activities? And I think there's a really, there's a discussion that needs to be had there, not just nationally, but internationally. This is something that we need to be talking about because of the ability to outsource these services and, and to you know, hire, hire mercenary hackers abroad. Uh, this isn't just something that we can determine and set the rules for nationally. This is something that's going to require uh, a, a multilateral, multi-stakeholder effort to really promote norms in. And so, and this is again why we draw from the previous examples of, of how governance has been achieved in similar uh, challenging situations like private security in the physical world. Well, thank you for that nuanced look at active defense. I, I hope it's nuanced. Yeah, I mean, th this is what we're really trying to do is expand the debate uh, uh, rather than simply be another sort of, you know, zealot on for, for one side or the other. Where, where could I direct listeners to if they wanted to learn more? Uh, so the website is uh, CarnegieEndowment.org. Okay. Um, you can find the, the page for the Cyber Policy Initiative uh, on the website. The report itself is called Private Sector Cyber Defense Can Active Measures Help Stabilize Cyberspace? Uh, and there's some follow-up work that we're doing on this on this similar issue that's looking at sort of the the role of the the role of states and the private sector more broadly and, and self-help in cyberspace and how we kind of grapple with these these tough issues. Again, learning from similar instances and experiences in history where we've had to deal with these problems, and, and hopefully that report will be coming out in the next uh, month or two. Though I say that, and I, I'm not exactly sure when it'll be coming out. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, Wyatt. Great, yeah. Thank you guys for having me. I uh, really appreciate this, and I think you guys are doing great work. So. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. So we've heard a counterintelligence specialist, and we've heard an infrastructure specialist each give their take. Where do you come down on the issue, Jacob? Do you think private companies should be able to strike back against those who hack them? Well, Wyatt certainly makes a compelling argument, and it's definitely nuanced in a way that I wasn't expecting. The idea of a hackback is just a tool in the arsenal rather than sort of like a valve that we turn and somehow can't close is a little bit more nuanced, and I, I appreciate the idea that, you know, it's at least it's an item on the table. I think by restricting our usage of it, you know, not just treating it as a hammer and every problem as a nail, it could prove to be fairly effective for us. And I think a lot of that rhetoric with that narrative of this valve that we can't open or close. I think a lot of these pundits and a lot of the arguments stem from the fact that the systems that we use, the tactics that we use in infiltration is very similar to what you would use in active defense. For instance, going into a network, uh, investigating, finding out information, this could easily transition to offensive. It could easily transition to an attack. If you know where it's coming from and you know the network and you're there and you're listening, you could turn that on its head and attack easily, which I think 
is discomforting for a lot of people. It definitely feels like you're moving towards almost like a dystopia world where in order to have better defensive security, you're now investigating other computer networks actively in order to preempt their attacks. Does kind of sound a little bit, you know, Big Brother is watching you sort of a deal. Right, and, and who determines whose networks you get to be in? Should we all be in everyone's networks all the time? Uh, does this idea of deterrence hold any weight with you? I think it really depends, is, is the fact of the matter on the actors involved and what's really being targeted. I mean, some, some things are likely to just be continuously targeted, even if you get a halfback, just because of the ease of targeting that particular target. But I don't know, there's other ones. If, if the actor has the ability to continually esca escalate their response, I mean, that certainly would prove a little bit more interesting. You know, like if you attacked some United States, you know, military facility with a cyber attack and they responded with their own cyber attack, okay. Uh, but if they could continue, if you continue to try to hack them, you know, that escalates into possibly like a physical conflict. But for like a bank, you know, the cost to you might be low if they are able to deal some damage you back to you back. But um, unless I don't know, it, it really depends, I guess, on how much of uh, how much of a disincentive you can provide in a hack back. Right. And I think I think the paradigm of deterrence that we're imagining, we're importing from like a physical space. I think. And I think Wyatt mentioned this as well. He comes from a nuclear space. He comes from understanding uh, nuclear war and deterrence in that way. And it's not easily portable from one to the other. I think you, you said it perfectly in the sense that uh, cyber activities are a lot, online are a lot more liquid. There's a lot more actors involved. It's also not mutually assured destruction in the same way that nuclear policy would be. A lot of damage can definitely happen, but it's much more diffuse. I appreciate the comment saying that I had a perfect description, but I would call it anything but that. But I will say that certainly the cyber domain makes us rethink about our traditional ideas about deterrence. You liked before how Wyatt was discussing piracy issues in like the physical realm, like literal piracy with pirates, you know, uh, how, how they dealt with that, you know, and how that was something that they were kind of porting into the cyber domain. Right. I, I, think, I think the maritime example is a useful analog to think about the internet. Uh, mostly because it's not under the sovereignty of one country, that there are a lot of actors with different intent and different uh, goals involved. So I thought I thought Wyatt's example with with Somali piracy and and corporate response to that can it provides a useful analog, not perfect, but useful. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, there's no there's no like big government watching us to help us to protect us in the cyberspace. You know, that, that, that was like an area where there was a failing of the ability to protect those private areas. And I think there's, uh, changing topics a little bit, I think there's something challenging, something disconcerting, I would rather say, about a corporate entity like a Google, but maybe even um, a, car, a car maker or an entertainment company that has an arsenal and that has like a battle plan, so to speak. Um, and I think this this narrative, this idea of like battle and of like attacking and defending, it it kind of, it's, a, it's definitely like taken from our experience with like combat. And I don't know if that's a really healthy way to look at it. I think language is really important in policy and, and in corporate practice as well. And if we think of it as like an active defense, that sounds something that's like militaristic rather than this is just how business is nowadays business the business of the 21st century needs to have plans in mind for dealing with a cyber attack i think that's a very apt point i mean we should definitely be careful about 
the way we describe these things. People throw love to throw around the term cyber war. That doesn't really mean anything. It makes it sound like we're, you know, going to be reaching apocalyptic levels any day now when they say that. Um, but, you know, with my own experience with active defense, you know, as you're just saying, you know, it's kind of like part and parcel. It, will, it might become part and parcel with business, you know, just your business line. But uh, my own experience with it is, you know, I developed a a honeypot that was supposed to look like an industrial uh, an industrial control system. This is for a school project, and basically all it did was it just took connections in. It looked vulnerable, and it took connections in from basically anybody uh, with certain ports open that made it look like an industrial control system. And all I did basically was just log that traffic and just report like, oh, here's the actors that are looking at it. And I mean, by this definition, that's active defense, but that hardly sounds like, you know, I'm actually, it's, it doesn't really sound as terrible as like, I don't know, putting poison on like a doorknob or something like that. <laughs> putting poison on a doorknob. That's fun. That's fun. It, it, can we, can I mean, we name, can we call the episode poison on the doorknob? Uh, that is, uh, that is, like, you know, I didn't, I said that as a joke, to be honest with you, um, as like the Russia thing, but now I'm realizing how like apt that actually is for active defense because poison on a doorknob is quite, quite literally active defense, you know? <laughs> right, right. I mean, there, it, it, this is, this might be a, a weird analog, but there are laws, uh, they're, they're kind of, they're called home alone laws. I don't know if you've heard about these things where there are laws preventing you from putting traps in your house, right? So, you know, there's like like the shotgun trap where you'll have like a loaded shotgun in a window. And if you open the window, the shotgun will go off, right? Um, there are laws that like prevent that. You know, like there are, law there are states that have laws for stand your ground, where if you feel threatened, you have the right to use a firearm to defend yourself. But within that, there's an agency. Like you have to be there. So let's say so for instance- So what you're saying is, is that there's a Kevin McAllister exception. Uh, yes, there's a Kevin McCallacher. Well, it's not an exception. It's like specifically saying that like you shouldn't have traps um, because there's no human behind them. And so I think that's a really interesting perspective to have considering autonomous defense. Like how much different is it if there's no one behind the computer and the computer is defending itself? Um, where is that legally? You know, like it, we can't put a shotgun in a window, right? But we can let a computer create honeypots and, and collect information on the people that that, that enter systems. Um, it, it's an interesting comparison. I don't know if it's a good comparison, but it's one. To, it's a head scratcher. I yeah, you know, I didn't know that, and I, I think that's a fairly interesting perspective on the matter. Well, I mean, unfortunately, this is kind of something that's still developing, and so we're gonna have to kind of see how it goes. And you know, what what you need to really look at the takeaway for you all is what you need to be looking at is. You know what the policy the U.S. actually ends up putting out. You know, look at Congress and see if they actually push back on this or establish any laws, and just look at and see in the news what Google and these other, you know, big tech companies are doing or what banks are doing to defend themselves. It'll probably be a big headline someday. And what I think is really important here, and I really want to reinforce what Jacob is saying, is that in the internet, in regarding cyber, it's much more multi-party than other issues are. It is. There's so much involved with private actors and corporate interests, as well as the government, as well as illicit actors. All of these forces are coming together to create a system. And currently, this system isn't really at an equilibrium yet. We haven't really figured out how it's supposed to look. You know, the internet isn't that old, you know, since the 70s. We've only been at this for like 50 years. Uh, so I'm really eager and, and excited to find out what happens, considering that we're not all destroyed by an evil AI or something. <laughs> Isn't that the rallying cry of this podcast at the end? It's just 
warning about the future AI apocalypse. It's just around the corner, Jacob. Just around the corner. There'll be an AI Any with... Th they'll put paint cans in our house that'll swing down when we open a door. <laughs> well, let's hope not. We'll be the wet bandits of the internet. We'll just, we'll just constantly be running into these traps by an eight-year-old. Decrypted is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1433425 for the CyberCorp program at the George Washington University. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation.